Welcome back to the third episode of Alexa's Input. I didn't know if I would make it to three episodes, so I'm happily surprised that I've made it this far. And I'm especially pumped today because we're going to be talking with Mike Hurwitz, who's my mentor at Blue Core. He's a principal engineer at Blue Core. At Blue Core, what we do is we send personalized emails for retailers, so we're in retail marketing. And we get to use a lot of cool things and work with a lot of cool data. I'm excited to talk with Danger, we call him Danger, today because he's very passionate about databases and he knows a heck of a lot about databases. Like, I'm not sure how he fits so much information inside of his head, but he does. So I love talking with him always. He's a great mentor and teacher to me. He's highly respected among the company. I certainly respect him, think very highly of him. And so for that reason, I'm very excited to have him on today. Danger worked at FactSet, he worked at Tumblr for a while, then he worked at Shutterstock, Blink Health, and now he's at Blue Core. So he has a lot of cool experience. One thing I really like is this recommendation that Danger has on his LinkedIn, because of course I'm looking at his LinkedIn to, you know, tell you where all he's worked before. And I think it kind of sums up who he is pretty well. It says, Mike did a great job while we worked together. He has a strong work ethic and sees projects through to completion. And he was a fine office mate, often bringing cookies. Now, that's a great LinkedIn recommendation. Anywho, this will be part one of two parts of these episodes because, I mean, of course, we had so much to talk about that we had enough content for two episodes. So in part one, we'll just lay down the basics the differences in different databases, what trade-offs you need to consider, what the underlying data looks like, and just some of those basic things we need to talk about before we can really dig into distributed systems. And distributed systems will be part two. It will be the next episode. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to Alexa's Input! <laughs> that one had a lot of grit with it. I liked it. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'm quite certain my family is laughing at me right now. Uh, <laughs> As they should be. Welcome to the third episode of Alexa's Input. Today we're going to be talking about databases with my mentor, Danger, Michael Hurwitz. We call him Danger. I think it's a whole story. If you want to know the story, you should just ask him yourself. Anyways, Danger, how about you introduce yourself? Hi, my name is Mike, and I'm an engineer at BlueCore. I focus mostly on data stuff. So that is enabling our data scientists to do what they do and creating opportunities to serve data out. So a lot of focus on performance, and it's fun. I get to work with Alexa, and that's always good. Oh, how nice. So I want to first start with a little anecdote. A long time ago, about a year ago, when I was just a wee intern maybe still, we were building a Looker feature to serve our analytics dashboards on our site. I had come up with a poor design where you had to make a code change for every endpoint that we wanted to add a dashboard to. And we were making, we're rolling this design out because we wanted to add multiple tabs that show different dashboards. So my design was poor because you had to hard code it. It would require a lot of maintenance for me personally. And you came up with a very much superior design, which I thank God for over and over again, multiple times, where we can use the database to name the tabs and match them to the Looker dashboards so that I don't have any input. I don't, there's no maintenance basically for me. It's a very low maintenance system. And we can change it quickly without a, without a code change, without a deploy. 
And I remember I asked you, like, how did you come up with this? And you told me that you always think about the data first. Can you start by describing a little bit the philosophy you have around software engineering and thinking about the data? I feel like with any problem you're going to face, you've got to sort of pick a spot to start, right? So if, you know, I know a lot of people think API first or they think UI first. Well, I, I happen to think data first. And it's not that that's necessarily superior than anything else, any other way to do it, but it you got to start somewhere, right? And given that, you can you can take the problem you're trying to solve, map it into that space, in this case, map it into how you're gonna store and serve the data, and then everything else can kind of flow from there. But if you try to think too broadly about the entire system, I personally find that it's really tough to make any decisions about anything. So you pick your spot and you dig in. I got very lucky early on in my career that I had a really, really strong data engineer as uh, I don't know if he knew he was my mentor or not, but he was. And I learned a ton from him and sort of his methodology about problem solving has stuck with me all these years. Yeah, I've, I've taken it and used it in different other applications like database locking and monitoring and alerting where we set the threshold and the, the alert uh, parameters in the database. And it just makes my life so much easier because you don't need to deploy. And I really like using that type of philosophy now for other applications. I find it's, it's a lot easier to use. I mean, the whole point of the database is to store state, right? Yeah. So you can encode that state as actual code. You can encode that state as parameters that are going to be coming in to some particular part of the system. You can encode that state as storage that you're going to be pulling from at some point in the system. So thinking in those terms allows you to sort of be free of, this is what I need to know. What are the pros and cons of having that come in this way or that way or the other way? And, you know, it's kind of freeing to not, not worry about where it comes from first uh, because you know that all the options are there for you. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about your experience with databases and how you came to use them. So I was not a computer science major in college. I was an information systems major. And I took this fantastic class about databases. And there was this moment in that class that I, I always think back to where somebody asked, excuse me, what does group by do? And the professor sort of looked at them and blinked and said, uh, it takes the data and it groups it by whatever columns you specify. And the thing that I loved about that is that it's sort of like, hey, don't worry about the specifics of how this thing works. Just think about it conceptually, right? There is a contract here that we're trying to, to maintain with this database system. And by doing that, everything under the covers, you don't have to worry about it, you know, until you do. So I got out of college and I went to my first job and I met that, that gentleman I mentioned before, his name is Charlie, by the way, Charlie Cap. Hi, Charlie. Uh, <laughs> if he hears this, that would be amazing. Uh, <laughs> unlikely, but amazing. Um, and I met Charlie and his sort of knowledge about the inner workings of these, these kinds of systems was just on a whole other level. And I thought to myself, I want to know as much as Charlie does about this stuff. 
a lot of the systems that I was working on at the time, it would be some big, complicated, expensive database, and then a Visual Basic 6 front end on top of it that, that I was responsible for building. It was the late 90s. It was a dark time. VB6 was the most popular language in the world at the time, but it's pretty limited in what it can do. So the most interesting thing I was working with at the time was almost always the database. So that kind of sparked my love for this kind of stuff that still continues to today, frankly. Now, then everything you were working with was going to be some relational store, row-based, whether it was SQL Server or, it, although SQL Server at the time was pretty terrible, it didn't get good for another couple of years, Informix, Sybase, Oracle. I think I had a DB2 project, but I don't remember. But these were all similar sort of philosophically or architecturally, these, these systems where, hey, you have something that's managing B plus trees or something that smells like a B plus tree as far as you're concerned. So B plus trees, indices, acid transactions that have different meanings depending on which database you're talking about. But the concepts were always, were always the same. Uh, and it wasn't until a couple of years later that I started running into, frankly, different kinds of systems. Um, when uh, I left that job and I went to a financial data company, they had built their own rotated storage for time series. So they were storing things like prices over time. And when you wanted to ask questions like, what is the price for IBM over this period of time, right? You know, you want to draw a price chart. Well, you have to answer that question pretty quickly. But that's a completely separate question. I mean, it is like literally orthogonal to the question of what is the value of this basket of equities at this moment in time? So they had built all of their own custom stuff. I mean, they, they started doing it in, I want to say 78. So, you know, these kinds of tools just didn't exist then. But by the time I left there, they were already moving away from that and moving on to, uh, frankly, different kinds of databases that you could buy off the shelf. And they're not cheap, but you know, you don't have to write it yourself, and that's kind of nice. So when it came to time series, that brought out things like columnar databases, which I started seeing uh, when I left financial data, I started seeing those used for things like storing metrics where a regular row-based store really wasn't going to cut it for that kind of data, right? They couldn't handle the insert rate on one side. And then the kinds of queries, since you didn't know ahead of time, a row-based store really wasn't going to do it for you. You touched a bit on B plus trees. So maybe we can start with a bit about the underlying data. Can you tell me more about B plus trees or how trees relate to databases? Sure. If you can imagine that you're going to be storing, let's say the phone book, right? Like some piece of data where there is a kind of obvious order. Well, if the only thing you ever want to do to it is read, then take the data, put it in a flat file, sort the flat file, and hey, congratulations, you just got login read performance. And it doesn't have to be any more complicated than that. But what happens if you want to worry about changing data? You know, so you're going to be inserting a row. Well, 
how do you even do that, right? How do you do that in, in, a, in a flat file? You kind of can't at a certain point, right? You could say, well, I'm going to leave space between these things. And that way, I'll just have these records I'm going to skip and then I'm going to insert into, but it doesn't, it, it falls down pretty quickly. So the idea of a B plus tree is that first of all, you're organizing your data in a tree-like structure. So you are getting log n performance and the specific logarithm you're going to get, it's going to depend on what structure you're using, but you're going to get your log n lookup and you're going to have at the end of it, these uh, pages of data. And so if you need to make a change, that's okay. You make a change on that page, pages can split, pages can merge, all that kind of good stuff. Where B plus trees, I think, are, are pretty amazing is in kind of two core areas. The first one is one of the problems that you get when you want to store anything in memory is that at some point, the cost of following all those pointers is not negligible anymore, right? It becomes expensive. The idea of a B tree is that instead of being like a binary tree where, well, you know how deep it's going to be, it'll be minimally log two of n deep, but that means you're following log two of n pointers in order to get anywhere. And that can end up being a lot of pointers. Well, because really computers aren't flat memory structures, they're, you know, they're things like cache lines and they matter, you know, orders of magnitude faster than main memory then there's real value in saying that you're going to store a bunch of records together. So even inside the tree, it's not go left or go right. It is a hundred or a thousand or whatever, depending on, on what's going to fit in memory. As an array, it's going to be sorted in that block and you're going to be going down to the next level from there. And then once you get to the end, and because it's a B plus tree, not just a B tree, all the data is stored on the leaf nodes. Once you get to the end, you can then walk across that bottom layer when you want to scan. So the two core, if nothing else, if you think about databases in their most abstract, or relational databases, at least in their most abstract, there really are only two operations. There's seek and there's scan. Well, seek, we already said, you're going to log in your way down to the leaf node that you need. And because in a B plus tree, at least in most implementations, you can jump across from one leaf node to the next, right? They're effectively, not effectively, they're actually a linked list. You can then scan across the whole thing without having to follow additional pointers. So it's amazingly efficient. There are a lot of complexities in that particular data structure and it's really easy to get wrong, which is a bummer and has prevented my own attempts at implementing them from ever working right. Um, it's true, it's sad. But the alternative being a flat file, it's fantastic. It is, it is on a whole other level of flexibility, which is you know, great. And it also gives you the opportunity to have granular locking if that's something that you need to do what you're doing. Now, log structured merge trees have come in and Things are, things are a little bit different in, in relational land, especially, you know, after Facebook integrated RocksDB into MySQL. But on sort of a practical level, that basic operation of seek and scan is still kind of the way these systems work. It's a, a really powerful abstraction to be able to have. It doesn't solve every problem, which is why there are all these other database types. But 
you know, it's, it's a, it's a pretty good start. <laughs> yeah. I think that is fascinating actually how learning about all the different ways you can store data in a database, how the underlying part works. So you talked a bit about in memory, can you discuss the difference in a database holding its data in memory and on disk and how different databases do that? So one of the great things about, again, B-Tree is a structure and the same thing is true of all structure merge tree. I don't, I'm, not, I'm not here to talk crap about one <laughs> versus the other. Like, we can have that holy war on another episode maybe. But one of the nice things about it is that this, this idea of pages Right? You have these nodes that are of a particular size and they fit nicely into memory. Well, they can also align nicely with disk pages. So what needs to be in and what needs to be out of memory can be exactly mapped to what's on disk. So you're going to need to read a particular path from the root of your tree down to a particular leaf node. Well, you don't need to have the whole damn thing in memory in order to do that. And you can tell along the way exactly which pages you're going to need to bring off disk. So it gives you the ability to keep your in-memory and your on-disk representations in sync. For databases that use that kind of storage or that kind of in-memory representation, it's very easy to dump to disk. In fact, it would be strange to have a, a B-tree that isn't in disk. If your only goal were to store stuff in memory, frankly, moving memory around, especially you know, on modern machines, is so cheap that you don't need to use that kind of a structure. It's not, it's not necessary. So when I think of in-memory databases, I usually think of caches. Can you talk to me a bit about caching and don't we use caches with some of these more traditional row-based data stores? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so the core question around caching is the same as the core question around anything you're doing in terms of thinking about your data model, which is what are your access patterns? What matters to you? If you can say, hey, it's okay for this piece of data to be, let's say, out of sync between these two points, hey, then caches are great. Now, there are a lot of different techniques you can use. Are you doing a write back cache or a write through cache or a read through cache? Like uh, putting all of that aside for a moment, the fact of the matter is that, the, that you're talking about mechanisms to maybe pay more on the right side to get some efficiency on the read side or losing some freshness on the read side in order to save extra reads. But you're putting the data that you know you're going to want someplace where it's cheaper to get. Any of these database systems that are worth their salt, they're doing that in memory anyway, but that only scales so far, right? That only, you know, we haven't talked about distributed database systems yet, but in, in traditional systems, there's only so much memory you got in the box, right? And they'll use every last little bit of it for cash, but that doesn't change the fact that it's still only one box. You still don't have any way to improve your locality and you know, your access patterns may allow you to do something that is potentially more efficient. Something that really kind of changed things was Memcache made it really obvious like, oh, hey, there's some pretty clear patterns you can use for how to do this kind of stuff. And there's some really nice tooling that's been built since Memcache came out, you know, all those years ago that make using it 
in a more distributed fashion, pretty straightforward operationally. Redis, which is the other in-memory key value store that people talk about, Redis is a whole other animal. Most of the time I find that when I'm using Redis, I'm using it just as for the same kind of key value stuff that I would use memcache for. But Redis, it's really not just key value. It's serving entire crazy data structures. Oh, you want a list, you want a map, you want, you know, whatever. Like there's all kinds of other stuff in Redis. And they get away with that by doing some tricks that you really couldn't get away with in a more traditional general purpose database, like having a single thread to do all the work um, so you can avoid all the crazy weird locking problems you're gonna run into. It's, uh, it's, it's really powerful. The persistence story is kind of challenging. There are definitely limitations there, but if you don't care about persistence or you can live with the persistence limitations, hey, these, these things are great. The difference between Memcache and Redis is that Redis allows the value to be different types like lists and maps. Is that right? Sort of at their core functionality, that is the big difference. There are other things about how you know they kind of work under the hood that, and again, that, that single threaded nature of Redis is it's a double-edged sword, right? It's, it's incredibly powerful and it allows you to, to have these structures and not really worry about locking and all that. But if you really wanna have transaction safety, that system doesn't work. And if you have, you know, I don't, I don't think you can even buy a single core server anymore. I don't think that exists as a concept. Saying that you're gonna be running some kind of a server that is a server software that is single threaded on a multi-core box, which is all you can buy, what does that even mean? Now with virtualization, you know, we can have a mm -hmm. whole argument about whether or not, what is the server, the physical box, or is the server really the virtual machine that's running on top of it? Or is it the container that's running in the virtual machine that's running on top of it? But let's not focus on that. We can do let's... a whole episode on that. <laughs> How are the wires connected? What happens if it fails? Yeah. I, I, I aspire to have the like Seymour Cray level of knowing the whole stack. You know, he taught his workers how to solder. Like wow. I, I would, I, I do not know enough to be that guy, but uh, yeah, it would be life, life goals, being Seymour Cray. <laughs> that is true, that is life goals. So you touched on a key value store and we use that for caching. I also mm -hmm. remember we've used Bigtable. Is that not also a key value store, but it's definitely not cache. So Bigtable is a pretty different beast. So Bigtable is a wide column store. If you think of memcached as being a hash table effectively, right? You get a key, you can seek, there is no scan operation. And that's kind of all you get. And that's really powerful, don't get me wrong, but you know, it's, it's got its limitations. You can think of the wide column stores like Bigtable Cassandra, which is based on the Bigtable paper, I believe. Uh, and if not, um, I apologize for your comments. You can think of them as being, instead of being a, a map of key to value, it's a two-dimensional map. It's a map of maps to value. So it's a map of key to key to value. So you've got your table, you've got your row key, but the row itself has column families in it. And those column families have columns and those column families are stored together. So you can have something like 
I'm going to make something up that's terrible. But if you're going to have, say, people in there and you're going to have their demographic information over in one section and you're going to have behavioral data in the other, you don't need to load up the demographic data every time you're going to add a piece of behavioral data. These kinds of databases work pretty well for, again, time series type stuff where a key value would not really work out quite so well. It's a little bit too limiting to do in a key value store. The other thing about, about Bigtable and Cassandra that's very different from Memcache or Redis is they are persistence first. I know a lot more about Bigtable than I do about Cassandra just because it's what I've been using and Scylla and all the other like little friends that are in that vein. Like I know they exist, but I've never had to use them or had the opportunity to use them. But with Bigtable, the persistence layer is separate from the serving layer. So you've got these little tablets that are sitting on different machines and they are completely separated from the nodes that are gonna be serving your API requests. And that allows for, if you structure your data properly, that allows for some really great opportunities for parallelism. I have found Bigtable to be kind of amazing in terms of the consistency of its performance, even as I have done terrible, terrible things that they pretty explicitly tell you not to do. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. I remember going to the big table meetup and you talking to them about some crazy performance things we were doing. Yeah, and they were, first of all, Really nice folks, easy to talk to, mm -hmm. you know, excited to talk about this stuff, which is always nice. Yeah. But what I think really validated a lot of this for me was I was talking with just a name drop for a second. I was talking with I was talking with the Google Big Table folks, and I was also <laughs> talking with the folks at Spotify who were doing, you know, Spotify big, big stuff. Table yeah, they they are they are big big table users, and uh, I know I'm not speaking out of school by saying that. And it sort of validated that everything that I was doing was like an order of magnitude smaller, which is a good place to be, right? I, I don't I don't want to be on the bleeding edge if I can avoid it. I'd rather somebody else deal with those problems. But yeah, it's it's kind of amazing how you get the, that level of consistent performance while still having absolutely rock solid persistence. There are things you can't do, right? Like secondary indices are not a thing. So one of the great things about relational databases is that they'll manage secondary indices for you kind of out of the box. It's part of, it's part of the deal. Even if you're not using relations, the way Tumblr uses MySQL, they don't use relations at all, but they sure as heck use secondary indices. It's kind of wonderful to not have to worry about that, have to worry about the transaction issues that come along with updating in two places. Can you explain secondary indices? Sure. Let's go back to our, our example of, of the phone book, which I'm realizing more and more is an example I should stop using because no one uses phone books for anything anymore, myself included. <laughs> but let's pretend, right? So, we, so in our phone book, we've got last name, first name, and phone number. Well, if we're going to write that to a flat file, right? We can, or to a B plus tree for that matter, you can only sort it one way. If I want to look up by last name, so I've, I've got Griffith, Alexa, not a problem. I can look up Griffith, which is going to be a seek, right? So that's order of log n, 
and then I can go read the rest of my row. But what if I want to find the phone numbers for all of the Alexas in my phone book? Well, I have to scan the entire phone book to do it because I don't have any choice, right? There's no, mm -hmm. there's no way that I can derive the last name from the first name. The idea behind a secondary index, and there are different ways you can implement this, but you would have another tree that is sorted by some other value. In this case, we could say first name. Now, if you think of the, the, the tree itself, like the, the primary key index, the clustered index that, that we, we started with, our last name based index as just being another sorted set, it's sorted by a key and the value in this case is gonna be phone number. So we're gonna have last name, first name, and let's pretend we live in a world where there aren't duplicate last names and first names. So you've got your key, which is gonna be your last name and then your first name. And then you're gonna have your value, which is gonna be your phone number and your address and whatever other information is gonna be there in the phone book. Well, in the secondary index, your key is going to be whatever your secondary sort is going to be. So in this case, we said it would be first name. What's going to be in the value is dependent on what database system you're using. So some databases, that's going to be the primary key. So we've got our first name is going to be the key, and the value is going to be the last name, which is the part of the primary key we don't have. So if we want to get the phone number, we have to look it up in the primary index. Some databases like Postgres doesn't store the primary key or any part of the primary key. It's just a row index number. So given the first name, if you want the last name, you still have to go back to the primary index. Effectively, every other column is a dependent column, even if it's part of the primary key. And there are good reasons to do it both ways. It's something you gotta be aware of when you're designing your indexes, because again, access patterns are everything. But at sort of a practical level, you can do kind of the same thing, right? So given your, your primary index, you're going from key to value, where the value is going to be every non-key column you have. In a secondary index, you're going from some other key, which may or may not be unique. It doesn't have to be. You're going from some other unique key to something that's going to get you back into the primary index. Now, if you're going to update these things, that means that you need to have locking potentially on both of those data structures simultaneously. And that's where like Bigtable just doesn't do that, mm -hmm. right? They, they make no claim to do that. But depending on what you're doing, hey, that may be fine, especially if you're coming in on a single key every time, or if the cases where you're coming in on another key you can sacrifice freshness. So, oh, you're going to have this other index, but it's not going to be as up to date. Or you're coming in on this other key, but the number of rows you have is small enough that scanning isn't so terrible. Or the frequency at which you're doing it, because, you know, it's big table. The row, the row count had better be higher. You shouldn't be using it. So it's kind of like a columnar store in that way, right? Uh, well, it's, it's like a columnar store in that you don't have, there are no optimizations in the data structure to make it so you can avoid the scan, mm -hmm. right? Unlike a columnar store, you can just say you're going to have another table. That's going to be your secondary index. Now, in a columnar store, you'd approach this problem completely differently, right? A columnar store is fantastic when you just don't know what your access pattern is going to be. And that's very common in BI type queries. It's very common, like for what, for what we do at Bluecore, where 
you're asking to identify a set by behaviors that are not known at the time of collection. So I want to find all the people that bought red shorts last summer, but didn't buy red shorts this summer. You're not going to carry separate indices for when people bought red shorts. That's silly, right? So you need some way to avoid having to make that decision up front. Now, what a columnar store does is it throws away this data locality that you get with a row, right? So if I'm looking in my row-based store at you know, my, one of my phone number records, the last name, the first name, and the phone number, once I get to the record, they're all right there. Right, so doing that on one machine is pretty straightforward. You know, it is a data record that's a struct like you would have in, in a piece of code. With a columnar store, it's not really that way, right? All of the columns are stored separately and they all are effectively ordered lists of values where the order is consistent across all the columns. So you could say like, if you're gonna have have insert order be your determining factor. If I'm going to insert last name, first name, phone number into my columnar database, the row number in my column for those values would be this in my three columns would be the same. But those columns could be stored completely independently of each other. They could be on separate machines. They could be it's on other opposite sides of the world. It doesn't really matter. Because what you're saying there is I don't know the access pattern ahead of time, but I can optimize for parallelism and I can allow any number of machines to try to answer this question as efficiently as possible by saying, hey, I'm gonna look at a single column. I'm gonna run my predicate that I know fits onto that column on just that column. And I'm gonna get a, as my output, a set of row numbers and maybe the data if, you, if you're gonna be selecting the data out later. But in terms of just identifying values, it's the row numbers that matter. And so that's why updates are so costly for BigQuery, right? Or that we just don't do them. We just tombstone them. It's basically a pinned only because you're dependent on this, this row numbers, right? It is dependent on the row numbers. And one of the things about these columns is that they are stored in a variety of structures that are not necessarily easy to update in the middle. I'll give as an example. So if you think of it as literally just each column is a text file, well, what happens if there are only two values in your column, let's say? So the two values are going to be works for blue core or doesn't work for blue core, right? So we've got a, we've got a one and a zero, works for blue core, doesn't work for blue core. And we're gonna have in our database, every person who lives in New York. Now, Unfortunately, far too many people don't work for Blue Corps. <laughs> so you can imagine that you would have potentially millions of rows that are going to be zeros before you get to a one. Well, you could run length and code that very efficiently. If you're saying, hey, go find me all the people that work for Blue Corps, you don't need a very big file to do that. You surely don't need a million zeros followed by new line in order to do that. You could say, no, 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 no. Here's a one. And now you're gonna have 115,000 zeros until you get to your next one. And then you're gonna have another 2 million zeros before you get to your next one. Okay, great. But if you have to update that in the middle, you're gonna have a bad time. 
So the primary reason that a lot of these databases, the columnar databases, don't allow updates isn't just the fact that these things are stored separately. And by keeping them stored separately, you have to worry about insert order and all of that kind of stuff. Like, yeah, that is absolutely a factor. But I'd say maybe a bigger factor is that the way you want to store the data is not necessarily updatable in the middle easily. For BigQuery to say, yeah, we'll, we'll give you update, but really behind the scenes, it's tombstoning a record and writing a new one. From an end user perspective, I kind of don't care. That works just fine. And we're going to be scanning the whole column anyway, anytime we do anything. So, oh no, what's an additional row that later on they can collapse out as part of a cleanup cycle? Yeah, and this is what makes columnar databases so fast, right? Because they can compress the columnar data and it's all the same type. By doing that, you can search through the columns really quickly, as opposed to a row database where you store the rows all together and those could be different types, which is harder to compress, right? That's part of it, for sure. The way that I tend to think about it, I mean, people get their PhDs in this. So, you know, there's a lot to talk about. It's a big topic. Mm -hmm. But the way that I tend to think about it is that if you know the question ahead of time and you know the structure of your data, it's pretty hard to beat a good old-fashioned row-based database with proper index tuning and all that. But what if you don't know? Well, if you don't know, then you'd better not use a row-based database because you're going to have to scan the entire damn thing every time you're asking a question. And that's not really effective. Now, that's very different from the trade-off that's made between row-based stores and document stores. Things like Mongo or Data Store or Dynamo, um, although Dynamo is kind of in the middle between what Bigtable tries to do and what Data Store tries to do or Mongo tries to do. But where you're still trading off schema, but you're doing it for a different reason. In a columnar store, you're trading off schema for flexibility and parallelism, but you still have to define it. Right. It's just you can treat it very differently than you can in a row based store because you don't have to rewrite rows when you add a column or drop a column for that matter. Uh, whereas in a document store, what you're saying is that the database is kind of a secondary concern. You're going to deal with whatever the heck is in there on the application side. The benefit to that being, hey, if the change that was made doesn't matter to your code, then you don't have to do anything. I used to only store first name, last name, phone number, and now I started storing first name, last name, phone number, address. Well, who cares? And rows that don't have address, eh, so they don't have address. To serve my primary previous goal of answering phone number questions, who cares? It's now up to the application side to handle the fact that this is now a slightly different piece of data. What that means is that instead of having database migrations where you're going to be changing the schema of every piece of data that's stored, so they're all the same, what you end up doing in that world is your code needs to handle every version of the data that might still be in the database. There are pluses and minuses to that. I used to feel a lot more strongly about document stores and sort of the NoSQL 
I'll say movement, even though it's kind of gross feeling. Mm -hmm. I used to have very, very different feelings about, about document stores. But if you think about it from a practical perspective, it's really just, you have to deal with the fact that these pieces of data have changed shape. When are you going to deal with it? Are you dealing with it in your code? Are you dealing with it in the database? Mm -hmm. Are you in the unfortunate situation of needing to deal with it in both? For the most part, 99% of the time, it really doesn't matter. <laughs> like the decision that you're going to make will become really important when you start, you know, serving a lot of traffic and having a lot of data. But how many projects actually ever get to that point? Yeah. I was listening to another podcast and they were talking about how, you know, most of the time for most of my projects, I'm just using a flat file. Yeah. And that's fine. I tend to work in environments where if they want to hire me, they're probably past the point where that's fine anymore. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, that's that's because I, I find those kinds of problems interesting. And so I, I sort of self-select into that. It's worked out. Yeah. So it sounds like to me that row-based stores are particularly useful when you want to use most of the row's information. So you've designed it that way because you know the question you're going to ask. Whereas in columnar stores, you have more flexibility. So if you only want to read one or two columns out of, say, 10 columns, you get an advantage there rather than reading each row. You just read the columns that you need. But you also mentioned that this is advantageous when you have a lot of data. And you also mentioned it with big tables. So what is a lot? What is a lot of rows? At what point do you start to see advantages from a columnar store or a Y column store versus a row-based store? I would say that uh, this is very much a moving target. And a couple of years from now, if you listen to this, you're going to laugh at me. <laughs> but when you start talking about millions of rows, that's where I think things start to get kind of interesting and, and, and these choices start to matter a whole lot more. I do want to be clear that there is a bandwidth advantage in columnar stores for being able to ignore columns completely. But in a row-based store, first of all, you can create secondary indices that only have the columns you need if you know what the question is. And you can also project a column. So that is to say, take whatever data items are in the structure you stored and convert that into another structure. That's generally a pretty zippy operation, pun definitely intended. <laughs> the ability to deal with really, really vast amounts of data is going to require distribution. And that's where the columnar advantage really comes into play in terms of bandwidth. Again, assuming that you could know the question ahead of time, because otherwise the inability to index, that's enough to make a, a row-based store problematic. So where I, I think you start to see the advantages of these other systems are when you start getting into to millions of rows, uh, potentially, you know, when you, if you want to talk about like online behavior data, right? Even for a mildly successful website, if you want to do click tracking, it starts to become a lot of data really quickly, but it also becomes a lot of data that has some pretty clear structure that you can, where you can start taking advantage of things that are not as flexible as, as these row-based stores, where you know, using something like Bigtable can be a huge advantage because, hey, everything goes in one direction. Time always moves forward in the real world, so far as databases are concerned. You know, we're not putting our database on a rocket ship to a black hole and all that. 
But uh, there are trade-offs of flexibility that I think will lead you toward some of these other data stores like Bigtable and, and even some uses I've seen for tools like Mongo, where you can't do all of the things you could do in a relational database, but that's okay because you're dealing with things on a row basis as opposed to needing to scan. There are always trade-offs to be made there. The question that I think it'll hit every successful business is early on, you pick the thing that's easiest, most comfortable, whatever, whatever your team is going to be able to get up running and happy as quickly as possible. That's the thing that matters, friction. And if you're thinking about performance, you're probably making a mistake unless you know that's like the center of your business. Mm-hmm. But once you become successful, those trade-offs that you made early on may not have been the right ones to make based on your now successful volume. Yeah. You know, I don't know if, if you've seen in, in just recent days, Signal, they're getting their butts kicked right now. And, you know, much love, good luck to them. <laughs> uh, they're getting their butts kicked right now because they're having trouble standing up capacity fast enough, which is a pretty cool problem for Signal to have. That is the result of the decisions that you make early. And changing your mind at the right time is one of the hardest things I think any technical decision maker can even attempt, right? You're, you're going to have been successful up to a point. If you wait too long, you're putting yourself at risk. If you jump too quickly, you're putting yourself at risk on the, in the other direction because you're making your team less efficient. You're potentially making other trade-offs that aren't valuable yet. Wow, that's so true. And I've noticed that a lot of times people, well, we do at BlueCore, a lot of times you export to another database and use that as another way to get data for a different use case. I guess it might be important to sometimes do that as a way of maybe even sometimes transitioning or having another way to get the data. So just like we were talking about earlier with caches, it is not necessarily a problem to have multiple copies of data. One of the things that the relational database systems have tried to solve is, oh, you want to have this data stored two different ways? Don't worry about it. It's fine. We can answer both of those questions simultaneously and everything will be in sync and up to date. If you can sacrifice either read performance or write performance, or you can sacrifice freshness, there are so many databases that are eventually consistent. And that's good enough for a lot, right? A lot of use cases, eventual consistency is fine. For a lot of use cases, hey, having just a a write back cache is fine. When it's not fine, things get hard and they get hard real fast. (laughs) But if you can map your problem into that, hey, good. Now, as an example for us, where we're bringing in behavioral data and we're trying to make decisions on both behavioral data and trying to determine the true state of, let's say the catalog of a particular partner, the timeliness of that data is kind of flexible anyway, you know? They change the price on their website. How soon do we have to reflect that in our decision-making? Usually not that fast. So for us, it's really kind of easy to say, oh, we can copy this data and it's fine. 
we need a way to make sure that it's at least eventually consistent, as opposed to some of the cases we've run into where we are never going to be consistent. And that's almost always not okay. <laughs> but if you can map your problem into an eventually consistent kind of a solution, and that's okay, that's wonderful. That's way, way easier than trying to have like a globally distributed, consistent data store. You know, and if you take a look at systems like Spanner and Cockroach that are actually trying to do that, it's really cool. It's hard and potentially expensive. <laughs> These are really, really difficult and interesting problems. Now, not every small company could afford to do what Google did to get Spanner to work, which is to say, what if we could have a clock that was guaranteed to be in sync globally to within you know, some tiny portion of, of, of ROM? You know, not a lot of companies can do that. But you know, these days with cloud, you can say, well, I can't do that, but Google already did, so I don't have to. But these are, these are really hard problems to, to address for, for mere mortals like me. That was fun, right? You know, I just listened to it again. And every time I listen to it, I feel like I pick up something new again that maybe I didn't catch the first time. Danger just has, has so many good insights and information to share. Um, it's really an honor for me to be able to do these two episodes with him. You know what? I think it's finally time that I do a little bit of self-promotion. So yeah, I make these myself on Anchor and I edit them myself. And you know, I was a little bit naive thinking, oh, I won't do ads, blah, blah, blah. I'll never do ads, blah. But you know what? That was before I started editing and that takes up a lot of time. So if you want to support my podcast, you can hit the link probably in the bio somewhere, depending on where you're listening. You can sponsor me on Anchor. I might do ads sometime soon, but I'd rather not kind of want to pay someone who's good at recording to do the and does this as their job I think it'll be a much better listening experience but you know that also costs money so we'll see how it goes you can find me on twitter it's at lexalu l-e-x-a-l-0-u where I have mostly sarcasm but also maybe some decent tweets I really don't know uh whatever also on Medium, I like to write articles sometimes. I've actually written a few. Like I, I wrote articles before I did this thing. And you can, I think it's at Alexa Griffith, A-L-E-X-A-G-R-I-F-F-I-T-H. You can find me there. Anyways, yeah, so this is my shameless self-promotion. Happy databasing. And thank you for listening. I'll see you next time. <laughs>